How's everybody doing this morning? Somebody told me this morning that it's good we're doing Revelation because you know the end of the world is near. The Cubs have made it to the World Series. We'll see if the curse is ended. Well, Halloween is almost here next week. I decided that uh, I would do a little research on Halloween. Um, it's kind of interesting. One of the things I found out is that um, our culture is saying that Halloween now is the second most popular holiday next to Christmas. And what I discovered is that that's an urban legend that's not true. In fact, if you look at retail sales, they're about sixth or seventh. So. But it is growing in popularity. It is. The thing that was most fascinating to me as I looked at Halloween was its history. I wasn't very familiar with this. Uh, Halloween you can trace all the way back to a Celtic festival called Samhain. Samhain was celebrated just when autumn was leaving and winter was coming, when, when the light and the heat of autumn was declining and the cold and darkness of winter was coming. The Celts believed that the evil spirits would come out of hiding. So they developed a number of rituals uh, to protect themselves. One of the things they would do is they would put on costumes and, to hide their humanity so hopefully the evil spirits would pass them by. Another thing they would do is at night they would light these huge bonfires uh, in the hopes that the light of the bonfire would keep away the evil spirits. And then they also began handing out treats at their doors, uh, kind of in a symbolic way of pacifying the evil spirits so that the evil spirits wouldn't play, uh, they handed out treats so the evil spirits wouldn't play tricks on them. So all of that was part of Sam Hain, this celebration. Well, the fascinating thing was that uh, in six and seventh centuries, uh, thousands of Celts became believers, became followers of Christ. And that really put the church in this uh, predicament. What do they do with this pagan holiday, Samhain? And what they decided to do was rather than trying to eradicate it, they would try to co-opt it, try to redeem it, uh, use it for something good. After all, the holiday was designed to fight against evil, so they thought that would be legit. How can we redeem this thing? So Pope Gregory III decided to celebrate All Saints Day on November 1st. All Saints Day, and it was a time to mark the saints and the martyrs of the church um, who are also known as the Hallows or the Holy Ones. So that day became known as All Hallows Day. Well, Sam Hain was actually celebrated not on November 1st, but on October 31st. So October 31st began to be known as All Hallows Eve. And over time, that became Halloween. What's ironic about that whole thing is that the church was trying to uh, shift the culture so that rather than being fascinated with evil, they would become more focused and intrigued with good and holiness. 
but I don't think it worked. In our culture, we are far more fascinated with evil than we are with good. We have far more movies made about serial killers than we do about saints. In fact, I'm hard-pressed to think of any movie made about a hollow one, a holy one. We're just not very intrigued with that. Now, part of that is we, we don't have a good understanding of what holiness is. Now, what, what, what does a holy person look like? Um, how do they behave? Thank you very much. I'm sorry. Um, how do they live? Um, we don't know. We, we don't have a, a picture in our mind. A number of years ago, Barbara and I went to Italy on a vacation to Florence. And in Florence, there's all these museums and all these paintings from the 16th, 17th, 15th, 16th century during the Renaissance. And a lot of them uh, are painting the saints. And in those paintings, you always know who the hallowed one is or the holy ones are because they always have a circle of light around their head. And you know, oh, that's the saint. You know, they have this gaze off into heaven that's very serene. But that doesn't help you much with real life. I mean, I've never met a person that has, you know, an aura of light around their head that tells me they're, they're a holy one. So what does a holy person look like? Now, how would you know if they're a holy? The word for holy in the Bible, there are two of them, are pretty interesting. In the Old Testament, it's kadash. And it is simply a word that means to set apart or to be apart from. So we think it has the notion of being set apart for God as something to say. In the New Testament, uh, the word is hagias. And it, it kind of has the same general meaning to put something apart with this idea away from sin to God. Now that idea of holiness, of being separate, is really easy to understand when you think of God because God is transcendent, right? So God is totally separate from his creation. He's transcendent above it. He's holy. He's totally other. But when you take that notion and try to apply it to life, it, it, it's more difficult. What, what does it mean to live a life set apart for God? Now, some people try to come up with a list, you know, of things you do and don't do, and that's kind of how you define holiness. But I'm not sure that is always that helpful. Because I think, really, holiness is a lifestyle. I think holiness, a holy person, is somebody who is striving with all they have to love God and to love people. And, and in a sense, they set their whole life to that end, set it apart for him, to serve him, to love him, to love others. Came up with a, a little definition that might help us. At its essence, to be holy means that the moral quality of our character and actions conform with God's holiness. To what it simply means to be like and live like Jesus, inside and out, in our inner world, and our outer actions. That's holiness. Now the thing I want us to understand this morning is that God really values holiness. It's really important to him. I did a little study on the word in the scripture and it was fascinating to me 
how often God calls us holy people. He calls us holy. I'm not sure we always live holy life, but he calls us holy. It's like it's the vision of what he wants us to be. And then again and again and again, he calls us to live like what we are, to live holy lives. Now, part of the problem is we live in a culture that, that doesn't value holiness at all. I mean, in fact, we live in a culture that sees holiness as kind of boring. We live in a culture that sees holiness as restrictive. Uh, when was the last time somebody held up a person of character and holiness as the model that we're to strive after in our lives? Our heroes are anything but holy. Our heroes are people who have great athletic skill or great acting ability or who can sing amazingly well who, or, or who are physically beautiful or who have made lots of money and are powerful and famous. That's our heroes. We don't know about the heroes who are holy. I mean, I couldn't think of anybody that we, we see as a hero other than maybe Mother Teresa and Jesus himself. We just, we just don't. Not in our culture. And here's the problem. I'm not sure we value that much, it holiness that much in the church. If we live in an age of tolerance, and we as a church have put most of our focus on being loving and gracious. And we're, we're afraid that if we set a standard of holiness and an expectation that people are to live up to that, that, that standard, we're going to come off as intolerant and judgmental. So we've backed off. And I think sometimes for good reasons, it's because we want people to understand the grace and the love of God. And we know the reality that everyone is broken. And all that is true. But even with that, God's expectation is that although we're broken and we've experienced God's love and grace, the challenge now is to live out the calling that's put on our lives to be holy. This morning, we're going to look at a church, Thyatira, that no longer holds up the standard. In fact, they have become tolerant of unholiness. They become tolerant of evil. Thyatira is kind of an interesting little city. Um, all the letters written to the churches in Revelation are tied to cities. There's seven of them. Thyatira is the least important and the smallest. It was on the edges. It was a place that was overrun by different uh, approaching armies again and again. Eventually, Pax Romana came, the peace of Rome, and once that happened, they were able to their feet under them, and they became an economic center. And the reason for that is they were on a really good trade route, all right? So they really focused on developing the economy of their little city. And what that meant was is that for this city, the guilds became extremely important, the trade guilds. Uh, guilds were like clubs that were centered around specific trades. Say you were a carpenter, you were part of the carpenter guild, or you were a metal worker, you were part of the metal guild. And uh, it, to, to, to make money and to make a loop, it was really important that you were part of those, those guilds because that's how commerce took place. And the problem was, if you were a believer, um, it was difficult for you to fit in because all of 
guilds were attached to a god or a goddess. And they would have gatherings and they would have feasts. And in the midst of those feasts and gatherings, they would indulge in worship to their god or their goddess. And oftentimes that involved a kind of idolatry and oftentimes involved immorality. So in the church of Thyatira, the, the pressure was really on to compromise with the surrounding culture and to give in and to become and take a hold of the values and the practices and the sin of the culture of God. So it's into that context that Jesus says these words. I'm going to ask Ben to come up and read the letter to Thyatira. A reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks, man. The first thing to note is that Jesus has some really good things to say about this church. Look again at verses 18 and 19. To the angel of the church, uh, uh, verse 19, he, he says to the church, I know your deeds your love and faith, your service and perseverance. Uh, that's a pretty strong commendation for the church. I mean, this, this is a church that really loved on people, loved each other and, and loved people outside of themselves. I, I mean, they were characterized by this, this, this compassion. And, and not only did they love others, but they had a genuine faith. They, they trusted in Jesus. He was a reality for them in, in their lives. He was not just this mental abstract concept they loved people, they trusted Jesus, and notice that resulted in them doing service. Service to each other, but also service to the community. They were trying to make a dent for the kingdom in that city. They were, were trying to live out their faith consistently. And they even did it when it was hard. He, said, he, he marks their perseverance. Even when circumstances are difficult, uh, you guys endure. You, you hang in there. And then I find the last thing he 
says about him, really intriguing. He says, you are now doing more than you did at first. This was not a church that had become stagnant. This was a church, in a sense, was growing in their, their service to the community, their love for each other, their trust in Jesus. I mean, those are all great things. They were really after doing good. The problem is, they thought because they loved Jesus and they trusted him and they were doing good things, that their personal lives could get an exemption. They thought as long as we're, we're, we're loving Jesus and doing good things, then how we live in our little sphere, private sphere, doesn't matter. And the reason they thought that is somebody was telling them lies. There actually is a witch in their midst. Look with me at verse 12. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and eating foods sacrifice to idols. The question is, who is this Jezebel? Now, I, I think she is a real person, uh, a, a real woman who is in this church, although I don't think... She goes by the name Jezebel. She doesn't call herself Jezebel. I don't think the people in the church called her Jezebel. Jesus is calling her Jezebel because he's trying to, to link her with, with this archetype, this representative figure that comes out of the Old Testament because there's a Jezebel in the Old Testament. And the Jezebel of the Old Testament represents this evil woman. This evil woman. If you go back into the Old Testament, you can read about Jezebel. Jezebel, her name literally means chaste, but she's anything but chaste. She is a princess of the Zidonians who actually marries one of the kings of Israel named Ahab. And when she marries Ahab, she leads him into idolatry, into the worship of Baal. Baal was a fertility god. And Ahab began to, to, to practice idolatry. And not only did she lead Ahab astray, but she was trying to lead the nation astray as well. There were 850 prophets that she supported that were beginning to persecute the people of God and lead the people of God astray. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 9, uh, Jezebel is described as one who was leading Israel into sorcery and witchcraft. We don't know much about this woman, but we know that she's having a terrible impact on the church. If we could go back to the verse 401. Um, she calls herself a prophet, and she's teaching people lies. In fact, it says by her teaching, she misleads her servants to sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. This word for mislead is a, a fascinating word. It is the Greek word plano, and it literally means to seduce. And the idea here is that she is seducing people by deceit into sin. I think what she's telling them is, look, as long as you love Jesus and you're trusting him, you can live like you want. 
you want to be part of the guilds and they involve you in a little bit of idolatry or immorality, it's okay. Jesus is on the church's case because they're tolerating that kind of teaching that's leading them astray. And the two things they're getting involved in is sexual morality and the eating of food sacrifice titles. Now, now, my guess is that some of the people in the church were actually doing those things, okay, because it was part of the practices uh, of the guild. But I think sexual immorality and eating of food sacrifice to idols in the book of Revelation uh, point beyond themselves. It's not just, we, we read this and we think, well, I'm fine, I'm not involved in immorality. You know, I haven't had food sacrifice to an idol for a really long time. So this doesn't relate to me. No, 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 that's not the point. These are just representative sins of something bigger, and the something bigger is the, the conforming to the values and the idolatry and the sins of the prevailing culture. And that's what's going on. And that's why Jesus is angry. Immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. <coughs> and what's interesting, as Jesus speaks to this church, what he's going to do is confront some of the lies. Now, he doesn't come out and explicitly tell us what the lies are. But we can tell what the lies are by looking at the statements of truth that he gives. So what I want us to do uh, is to step back and look at those lies. Because I think the lies that Jesus confronts in this church are the same lies we tell ourselves when we get involved in sin. And we put together a little chart to help us think through that. Okay, there's going to be three lies in three truths. The first lie is this. When we get involved, the first lie we tell ourselves is that no one will know. No one will discover what we've done. We'll get away with it. I mean, if you're going to steal a cookie from the cookie jar, you don't steal it when your mom's in the kitchen, right? You wait until she leaves, because when she leaves, you can get away with it. You won't get caught. If you're going to cheat on your taxes, you don't do it if you know it's likely you're going to get audited. It's when the chance of an audit is very slim that you're more tempted to cheat on your taxes. If you're going to embezzle money, you don't embezzle money when you know that your boss is checking the books and the accounts all the time. You steal it when you think you won't get caught. Right? If uh, you go and look at pornography on the internet, you don't do that when somebody's standing behind you. Uh -uh. You do it when no one's around when you're pretty sure you can get away with it and you won't get caught. That's the lie of the internet, isn't it? That we can have anonymity and secrecy? And WikiLeaks is proving that otherwise. You know, when people get involved in romance novels, they do that because they create this artificial world with, with, with distorted reality and distorted values in their minds and they play a part of that and part of the reason they do that is because they believe, well no one will never know, it's just in my head, it's just in my mind. The reason people get involved in an affair is because they think they can get away with it. My spouse will never discover, we can keep it hidden, we can keep it so no one ever knows what we're really doing. When we, we get involved in envy and jealousy. And, and part of the reason we do that is because we think we can keep the facade up. 
we, we can act nice to people even though inside the green monster is taking over our soul. But people out there that they'll never know. It, it, it's the same idea with addictions. Whether you're addicted to food or drink or prescription drugs, part of the addiction is, is, is secrecy. You want to hide it. You keep telling yourself, I can't hide it. I can just function like normal. And nobody will ever guess what's really going on. Do you know what the truth is? The truth is, God always knows. <clears throat> and, and, and to be honest, he's the only one that matters. And he knows. You can't hide it from him. Look at what he says in verse 22 through 23. He's talking about the judgment that's going to come on Jezebel. And we'll come back on that because it's a severe judgment. It's part of that in verse 23. He says, I will strike your children dead. And then notice what he says. Because of that judgment, what's going to happen in the church is that then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and lives. And the word there for heart is the literal word for kidney. And they saw the source of your emotions, your, your kidneys, and mind is, is the source of your thoughts. And, and earlier on, remember, Jesus was described as the one with eyes blazing fire because he sees everything. And then it, he says, and I know your deeds. And then he lists the positive ones. But the implication is not only does he know the good things you do, he knows the bad things you do. And, and the idea here is not only does he understand the behavior and the actions, but he sees into the inside of us. He knows the thoughts. He knows the motives. He knows the attitudes. All those things we think we can keep hidden. We can't. He knows. I was reminded of the story of an old man who was getting old and he was losing his hearing. His kids were always around him talking, but he couldn't understand what they were saying. So without telling them, he went and got hearing aids. And then he heard what was really going on. And he changed his will three times. <laughs> God almost knows. That you would think him knowing would change our behavior. I mean, when I was growing up, when my dad was around, I was a pretty good kid. When my dad was not around, I was not so good. You know, if I was going to mess up, and do things I wasn't supposed to do. I would wait until he went to work. I would wait until he wasn't looking. Because part of me doing things I shouldn't do was the notion that I could get away with it. He'll never know. But if I knew he knew, if he was there, and I was a great kid. Man, thinking about that, why, why is it the reality that God knows and is with us? And in fact, inside of us, why doesn't that make us believe it? I mean, holy cow, that's a scary thought. You begin to think about it. Right? God not only knows my behavior, he knows my thoughts. He knows my motives. And he's always Would be a lot of motivation. And I wonder.
obedient than I am if I know that God is present. I wondered if maybe it's just a lack of faith. I mean, intellectually, right? We know that God is present. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that God is in you, right? How many of you believe that? Raise your hand. Wake up. Raise your hand. I'm just <laughs> keep you awake. Yeah, all of us do. At least intellectually. But it doesn't transfer into behavior. And I wonder if it's because we think, well, God is just so big and the world is so complex. And I'm such just, I'm just this little detail. He won't notice. He won't bother. And we kind of push that out of our minds. So we, we really don't have faith that that's true. We just assent to it intellectually, but not in practice. Or, or maybe it's because we become too familiar with the presence of God in our life. You know how you, your behavior kind of degrades as somebody gets more and more familiar with you, like in your family? You know, you go home, you're going to watch the game, you grab a bag of potato chips, you pop beer open, you put your feet, you know, on the couch, and you watch the game in your underwear. <laughs> and your family is all around. But if you have a guest over, that doesn't happen. Uh-uh. But you get familiar with your family. I wonder if we're just so familiar with God because he's always there, he's always present, that we just begin to disregard his presence in our life. Or maybe it's just intentional denial. I mean, it's a, it's a scary thing to think that he's always there, so we kind of deny that reality so, so we can function and deny that reality. We do it once and again and again and again because of how <coughs> and we begin to function that way. We live in denial that he's present. God always knows. Always knows. That's The second part we tell ourselves is that uh, well, the consequences of sin really aren't that bad. I mean, they may affect other people, they won't affect me. You know, and it even bleeds out into our language. People talk about safe sex. And it's this notion that sex is okay even outside the bounds of marriage as long as you practice safe sex. Folks, sex is never safe outside the covenant of marriage. You may be able to, to protect yourself from disease, but, but you, there's nothing you can use to cover up your heart that will protect it. And when you engage in that behavior without the, the protection of the covenant of marriage, you put your heart and your emotion and your soul at risk. Sex is never safe outside the context of marriage. We fall victim to greed and materialism and we think, ah, it's, it's not that big a thing, the consequences aren't that bad. But, but really they are because what we do when we get into our greed, we create this monster inside of us so, so nothing's ever enough. We always get more and more and more to feel significant and to feel satisfied. Because every time we get something else and indulge ourselves, the, the satisfaction only lasts for a moment and then there has to be more. 
or dishonesty. At the moment we lie, we think, you know, telling a white lie isn't that big a deal. In fact, the benefits of lying outweigh the benefits, the, 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 the consequence of not telling the truth. And we forget that the consequence of not telling the truth is you begin to destroy trust. And trust is the bedrock of your relationship. And when you lie, you become a liar. And when you become a liar, you're not trustworthy. And when you're not trustworthy, your relationships blow up. People talk about pornography being a victimless crime. It's not a victimless crime. Not for the one looking at it or for the one who's participating in that industry. When you indulge in pornography, you're setting unrealistic expectations uh, of what sex and women or men are like. You create this cycle in your life where you begin to need more and more and more and more stimulus. You begin to view the world differently and most, most harmful is the fact that you begin to view people differently because you begin to see them as objects. And when you're indulging, you're lying to yourself because you're really not thinking about the, the people on the other side who are involved in this industry where it's destroying their lives. Just ignore that. Yet a caster out of the Eden. 
Sodom idling on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems like sin at first beginnings. Let us then watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. Sin lies about its destructive power in our lives. And Jesus doesn't want us to be duped. He says, look, sin always brings consequences. Now, now, I think we have to keep in mind that that part of the reason Jesus reacts is he understands that his creation it is built around a moral order of how he designed the world. So that when we live obediently and holy lives, we fit in with the fabric that he created. But when we're disobedient, when we sin, we go against that fabric to our own detriment. Earl Palmer puts it this way. He says the theological principle that underpins this passage is that the created order of God is moral. And the violation of that moral order does not go unpunished. Interpersonal immorality has always been destructive to human relationships because such sins, just as the sins of false gods, pride, selfishness, etc., go cross grain to the grand design built by God into the very fabric of life. Consequences of sin are built into the sin as well. We drink too much. You're going to get addicted. into the sin of pride. You're going to create competition in your life and damage relationships and end up a very lonely, lonely person. You cave to the sin of anger. You're going to not only destroy relationships with people you love and hurt them deeply, you're going to hurt your own soul. the stronger the shock. 
They don't come. I'll zap them a little. They run into the street. I'll zap them a lot. They get in here, a rattlesnake. Man, they're going to jump off the ground. Because I want to teach them you don't get near that. And I'm doing it because I want to hurt them. I'm doing it because I love my dogs. I'm doing it because I know if they're obedient to me, it's better for them. And God is the same way. Sin has consequences. God judges. So the third lie is the lie that obedience just really isn't worth it. That's the lie of our culture. Right? Our culture really believes that if you want to have a good time in life, you have to sin a little. Maybe you have to sin a lot. But holiness is grand. Holiness is out of style. Nobody out there is champion. Champion holiness. Nobody. Just the opposite. God's the only one. Because we, we don't believe it's that valuable. God does. I like what Jim Elliott wrote in his journal. Uh, Jim Elliott was a missionary in South America. And he writes this. He says, I'm dwelling in a generation to whom nothing is holy. Sacredness is an aspect people never assume towards anything. They revel in bald frankness which weakens moral conscience. I feel it affecting. Just to sense for a moment that I have somehow, however small, simulated some measure of thy character, Lord Jesus. But what gracious Bonner spoke to me tonight. Holiness is not austerity. It is the offering of conscience. Jesus is doing this. He's, he's pointing to the end of time. And he, he's telling them, do you 
understand what you are created for, what the end of the story is. The end of the story is you are to rule with me. N.T. Wright makes this comment. He says, Jesus didn't die to give us a destination. This heaven. Jesus died to give us a vocation. And that is to be co-rulers with God. And this is going all the way back to the creation story. Because in the creation story, we are told, we are created to rule, men and women rule over God's creation with him. And Jesus said, that's what's coming. That's me. And that's worth it. That's awesome. More incredible than you could ever imagine. Fulfill the calling I've given you to be holy people. Because that's how I designed you. And in the end, you have something great come. See, our problem is that we, we value the momentary pleasure of sin far more than we value or to have in the world to come. And as a result, we live more for this world than for the not yet. Delayed gratification is, it is not a trait we develop much in our lives, in our culture. Because we want everything instant, and we want it now. But delayed gratification is an awesome trait to have. Remember that old experience that the psychologist did with four-year-olds and marshmallows? Probably seen it. Uh, they bring four-year-olds in and they, they tell them, hey, I'm going to give you a marshmallow. i got to run an errand. If you don't eat the marshmallow until I come back from my errand, I will give you two marshmallows. Well, the guy leaves. This was four-year-olds in an incredible predicament. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny to watch them. I mean, they cover their eyes. They sing to themselves. They look all over the room. Some of them get up and walk around. Some of them just eat the marshmallow. <laughs> trace those kids, though, and they find that the ones who can delay gratification are better readers, score better on aptitude tests, are better adjusted to life. That's what we face. Do we live for the now? Or do we live for the now now? And Jesus is saying, man, you will not believe the now yet. God knows, God judges, and God knows. Now in this passage, as Jesus is talking to the church, he really divides the church into two groups. There's the group who are part of the Jezebel group, and to him he says, hey, you need to repent. To the rest of them, he says, that goal 
And if we are, then we need to keep at it. We need to persevere. Because the reality is, you know, folks, none of us are perfect. We're all broken. We're all on this journey to, to, to strive for the vision. But we're never going to ultimately make it until the end of time. The, the church is not a, a, a community of perfect people. It's just a, a, a community of people who hopefully are heading in the right direction and struggling hard. To, to this group, he says, persevere. But to the other group, they're not walking, struggling towards holiness. And you see, if you're not walking towards it, then you're walking away from it. So he says to them, repent, which simply means to around. This morning, I wanted to ask you this question. <coughs> which group are you in? You need to persevere because it's a struggle and you know you're broken, but you're heading in the right direction. And you everything in your mind to, to work towards the vision. Have you given up? Do you need to repent? You need, you need to, to maybe break up some relationships. You, you need to maybe to control the environment. You need to, to get some help. You need to, you need to turn around. Which is Eight. 